0: After two years of a fully online event, we're excited to be back in Liverpool with a refreshed congress. As always, the event will offer three days of education and CPD with a programme that showcases the most cutting-edge content for a multidisciplinary audience that addresses the medical, scientific, educational and management issues in the diverse fields of diagnostic imaging, oncology and radiological sciences. Alongside this is a large professional exhibition of the latest state-of-the-art equipment, services and technology available in the industry.
1: With the return of in-person Congress comes an opportunity to refresh and rebuild the event with an emphasis on networking, practical and hands-on sessions, case study and discussion-led content, Content for trainees, generalists and skills mix sessions and an interactive exhibition. So join us, Radchat, at UKIO Congress in Liverpool, 4th and 6th of July. Registrations now open. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So this is number 42. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Professor Alan Pacey, who talked about fertility and cancer. So if you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Dr. Emma Hyde. He'll be discussing personalised cancer care within diagnostic radiography. So hello, Emma, welcome, or should I say doctor now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> hello, Joe. hello, Naaman, lovely to see you both.
1: Oh, it's great to finally have you on, and I know lots of the, uh, the guests have been willing for a diagnostic radiographer to come on. So I'm sure the audience will be really pleased to, to see, see that you're on for today's podcast. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career history, if that's OK?
2: Yes, of course. Yeah. So I am a diagnostic radiographer, as you said, Joe. Um, I actually trained at your very institution, Sheffield Hallam University, back in the 1990s. Um, So I was one of the first degree students to come out of Sheffield Hallam. Um, And then I spent 10 years working in the NHS in a variety of different diagnostic radiographer roles, specialising in CT and MRI particularly. So lots and lots of experience of working with oncology patients. Obviously, CT and MRI makes up a huge proportion of the workload. Um, So very, very used to to that. I moved into education 16 years ago now, so um, at the University of Derby. So obviously started out as a lecturer first and then worked my way up to senior lecturer, then became the head of diagnostic imaging, and more recently I've now taken over um, management of the operating department practice and the osteopathy areas as well. So I've now got a really big discipline area with four different groups of allied health professions in. Um, so I also recently got promoted to associate professor of diagnostic imaging which I was hugely proud of because it's the first time at the University of Derby we've had an associate professor in diagnostic imaging. So that's a, a real landmark for us and in, in shows how much the team has changed and research has changed at Derby over the last few years.
1: Amazing career. What, what made you decide to go into education?
2: It was quite a natural transition actually. So in my roles in Clinical practice. I was always very interested in working with students. I enjoyed the buzz of teaching. As I was working in CT and MRI as a clinical specialist, I got very involved in teaching students um, who would come and spend a week or so with us. Um, I used to love giving them little demonstrations of MRI safety um, And as time went on, I just got more and more involved. So I started helping out with prospective student interviews. I started doing little bits of teaching here and there. Um, And in my last clinical job, which was at, um, at the University Hospitals of Leicester, I was actually part of the teaching team in what they called the Imaging Academy back then, which was used to train their assistant practitioners. Um, and so it, from that point, it was a really, really natural move because so much of my job at that point was was to do with teaching or training anyway. So it was a very natural transition.
1: So in your current role, what does your normal day look like? You know, talk us through anyone who thinks, oh, I really want to go into academia. What does it look like for you?
2: There is, I would say that there's not a normal day. That's the first thing. <laughs> It's very, very different every day. Um, It really, really varies. Some days I'm in the classroom teaching students. Some days I'm in an online teaching session. Some days I'm writing learning materials, either for classroom or for online. Um, other days I'm busy with my leadership and management role in meetings other days I might be doing research so it really is different every single day and I think that's what keeps it interesting and keeps it stimulating that there is so much difference Um, I guess it's the same with any job isn't it if you've got variety it adds to the richness of it
0: I suppose it's all the different kind of experiences as well that you bring into your teaching so you have different backgrounds and kind of drawing it all together which is quite nice You're looking into personalised care at the moment. Um, What is personalised care for anyone listening and how can it be achieved in radiography?
2: Yeah, so personalised care is a relatively new term. We've talked about patient-centred care and person-centred care for a long, long time. But personalised care as a concept here in the UK is relatively new. Um, It's a phrase that's been coined by NHS EI. To describe a certain type of approach to giving care to individuals and it's about ensuring that that care is tailored to the individual's needs so it's about not making assumptions about what people will want what's important to them what their values may be it's about including them in discussions about their care how they would like it delivered um, and what the options are so not assuming that everybody's going to want the same thing and I I think it's really like thinking about inclusivity, which is obviously a very important issue um, that's been in the media a lot recently. And it's about it's the same sort of principle. It's about not assuming that everybody is starting from the same point. It's about actually to be to be giving a, the same standard of care to everybody. We might need to start from different points. So actually it's a better to think from an equity point of view rather than equality. And I think that just rings very true in terms of personalised care as well, especially when you think about the very different levels of health literacy and health awareness that there are um, within different groups of the individuals that we care for. It becomes really, really important when you start to think of it in that context.
1: Emma, could you give us any examples? I'm just thinking for maybe some students who are listening, who are thinking, OK, I kind of understand theoretically what you're describing, but...
2: Some examples might help. Mm, Absolutely. So... Personalised care in its truest sense in the universal model of personalised care is talks around personalised care and support planning and shared decision making. So usually that's around, for example, treatment options. And obviously radiotherapy is a, a classic example of that. So an individual may have a choice of radiotherapy only, a combination of radiotherapy and chemotherapy, a combination of radiotherapy and surgery. Etc. And in the true sense of the term shared decision making, it's about having that informed conversation with the individual and their family or carers and thinking. Help that helping that person to think through what is the best option for them without putting our own values and beliefs on onto that conversation, letting them really explore what's important to them. And I know that you will both be aware of that from your own interactions with individuals. And, you know, it, it's it's quite a fine line, isn't it, to balance that. But I think obviously that's not within everybody's usual day-to-day role as a radiographer. And it can come down to really simple things, like talking to individuals that we're caring for about uh, what might seem quite small things, but things that can have a really big impact on their experiences with us as radiographers. So it might be about adjusting the lighting in the room to a level that is more comfortable for them. It might be about playing a particular type of music, I mean, putting a certain radio channel on, offering an extra blanket or pillow, all these things could be, t- could actually come under the umbrella and should of personalised care because we're tailoring our care to the individual and not making an assumption about what they may or may not want.
0: I suppose we'd all agree that despite time pressures, we'd want to deliver personalised or person-centred care. Do you think some people, it might not actually be on their priority list? If you think, I know Joe hates the term fluffy, if I'm going to use it again, As therapeutic radiographers, we always say we have the interpersonal skill side, but also the technical knowledge. Um, Do you think that maybe if someone is a bit more technically advanced and that's the area that they prefer, how would they draw in that person centred care?
2: I think if I'm honest, from the research that I've done and the conversations that I've had with so many people over the last few years around this concept, it's something that we can all do, no matter whether we see ourselves as a softer, fluffier person or whether we see ourselves as very technically based. We can all do really, really simple things in every single interaction. For example, starting that interaction with, hello, my name is, and explaining who we are and what our role is to gain trust and rapport straight away. Um, that it can be an open gesture, a, a friendly smile and a use of appropriate touch, you know, a reassuring hand on the shoulder, a conversation about the weather or what was on the TV last night, although that's more difficult, of course, with streaming services, but just trying to engage with people on a really human level. Um, and those things take no time at all it's really easy for us to include in every single interaction that we have they don't make the examination take any longer they just take a little bit of thought um, to actually include within that examination
0: I think people forget that despite them maybe not thinking they're the most I don't know open and honest with the patient but even if you have a patient whose name you can't pronounce I've seen people who would say they're not very fluffy or have great interpersonal skills but they'll make sure that they're being sensitive Mm. and pronouncing it properly or saying i'm really sorry have i said it correctly but as you said it's just finding that tiny little bit yeah that's more than enough for some people they'll feel valued yeah i mean
2: uh, an example that really sticks with me from my days as a very junior newly qualified radiographer was assuming that um that colloquialisms would make make individuals I was caring for feel reassured and that I was there to look after them and I remember calling a gentleman once chick would you like to come in chick because where I worked at the time in Nottingham chick was a really common phrase and this gentleman just looked at me and said do not call me that and I realized then that was my my wake-up call that you must never make assumptions you always need to check what somebody would like to be referred two hours during you know what what's their preferred name how would they like to be referred to during your interaction with them
0: yeah and there was some some research we were involved in recently which I was lucky enough to be part of the focus groups mm. this was one of the themes that came up and it was really nice to see I know some of the feedback again within the focus groups you got was there isn't enough time to do this obviously I'm on the side of there is always time to do this but do you want to just talk us a bit about the focus groups that you held
2: Yeah, so thank you so much again for taking part in those. Your contribution was just fantastic. It was really great to have you there, being the voice of therapeutic radiography. So thank you. Um, Yeah, so the focus groups that you took part in, they were to actually validate some audit tools, weren't they? Um, So what had actually happened at that point, um, the research that I'd been doing into patient-centred care in diagnostic radiography with my collaborator, Professor Anne Marianne, Marianne Hardy from the University of Bradford had recently been published. And with that, some audit tools had been offered as a way to potentially try and baseline measure levels of person or patient-centered approaches within imaging and radiotherapy departments. And the focus group that you took part in was to actually validate those audit tools And they've now been finalised and are available free of charge for anybody to use, whether that's um, a student wanting to uh, reflect on their own practice and how they are doing, or whether that's a departmental manager wanting to measure levels of patient or person-centredness within their department. So they're there free of charge for anybody to access.
0: And yeah, it's really, really interesting. So I've talked about this in a lecture before, but it's slightly similar. There's a book called Compassionomics. Um, which has a similar kind of ethos where trying to measure compassion, which again is quite difficult to do because you can't watch everyone and everyone has a different level of it. But this is a similar concept mm. where actually in healthcare, there's so many points where we don't realize we are being compassionate or empathetic. yeah And as you said, it's about measuring it. And I really enjoyed the focus groups. So it's very interesting. I, I had to look this up because I didn't actually know about this, but there's an international community of practice for person centered research. Yes. Just for anyone listening, it might be. You know, if there's an area that they actually want are interested in, do you want to just talk a bit more about that so people could look it up?
2: Yeah, of course. So I joined this. Um, international community of practice about six months ago now it's a group of active researchers who are interested in person-centered approaches in health and social care so there's a whole range of different people in it some of them are in education some of them are in clinical practice and they're from all over Europe and different parts of the world so we've got Australian and Canadian colleagues in there people from all over Europe there's nurses there's occupational therapists physiotherapists therapists I'm the first diagnostic radiographer in that group and Gareth Hill who you may know is the first therapeutic radiographer in that group so we're we're putting the flags out there for the radiography community Um, so to become a member of the group you have to have evidence of um, your research into person-centred practice and obviously Gareth and I have both done doctoral work linked to that so hence why we're members Um, but it's a very welcoming community and I'm delighted to be part of it and be, be working with the group now so um, yeah it's just a fantastic experience to talk to other people about what person-centered care is like in different countries and how different healthcare systems impact on, th- on the care we can provide
1: and is the main aim of that group to then go on to do further research
2: absolutely yeah so there's a number of projects active at the moment um, and there's also an active postgraduate group which I've just joined as well so that's for people who have done a PhD in something person-centered Um so it's really, really interesting getting involved in that as a new, new doctor myself. Um, so lots and lots of interesting discussions happening within that group um trying to think of some of the things that we've been doing recently we had some really interesting discussions a week or two ago about defining how we were going to work as a postgraduate community um, of person-centered researchers we're thinking about how we can not only embed person-centered practice into clinical practice with our patients but also thinking about how we can bring it into education as well which is really exciting so um i'm really looking forward to the prospect of getting more involved in that in particular because there's so many similarities of course between how you interact with the students and and how you might interview interact with an individual in your care in clinical practice so so that's really exciting
1: oh it sounds interesting and definitely one to watch because i'm sure the outputs of that will be pretty special like i
0: can see joe's face just going like oh another collaboration maybe <laughs> <laughs> there's another role here for me <laughs>
1: I'm not saying yes to anything else. (laughs) (laughs) So Emma, can I just ask, um, obviously when we talk about personalised care or person-centred care, um, quite often another phrase that gets banded around a little bit is social prescribing. Mm. What is social prescribing and um, where would maybe a diagnostic or therapeutic radiographer or any of the allied health professions engage in social prescribing yeah
2: so social prescribing is a really interesting concept that's gathered a lot of momentum over the roughly about the last five years i'd say it's started to really become much more mainstream so it's an alternative to the medical model of care which sort of is predicated on somebody needing some kind of medical treatment or actual drug prescription to um, provide them with the care they need. It acknowledges that sometimes what people need is some social interaction, an opportunity to try a new activity or hobby, um, a way to do some exercise in a safe, supported environment, with the aim being to improve their overall health and wellbeing so um a lot of gp surgeries now are employing what they call a social prescribing link worker so this is a new emerging role um where that link worker is able to advise different members of um of the gp practice on what's available within the local community and actually work with patients from the gp practice to link them up to different social groups to help them join say a walking um, group or to go and join a craft group, or to link them up with other people that may have a a similar kind of um, health condition to them for peer support, link family members up for peer support as well. So it's really, really wide-ranging and really, really powerful. Um, And I think it really appeals to me because it's it's showing the power of looking at people from a more holistic lens. And actually, it's not just about the, the actual medical side of things that other side of things is really really important so for radiographers obviously it's something that we might not necessarily get involved in on a day-to-day aspect depending on what our role is but i think for people in advanced practice roles whether they're diagnostic or therapeutic there's certainly scope that maybe be um, a social prescribing approach may be helpful particularly i think i can see the application of that in therapeutic radiography where you've got lots of different things happening to individual patients receiving therapy um, but also I can see with perhaps with sonography as well, where there's probably quite a lot of links there. So the role that sonographers have is often to provide further advice and guidance. And I can see perhaps there's some links there too as well. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see how we can grow into that role as professions. Um, of course, our wider colleagues in the other allied health professions um, are a little um some of them are a little bit more naturally aligned with it. So if we think about physiotherapists, for example, an occupational therapist, you could see straight away that there's quite a clear fit for them. But I think there is a role for any allied health professional to get to understand more about social prescribing and think about how they can potentially impact on the individuals they care for.
0: How do people become a social prescriber? So I love talking about exercise to patients. I've got my 5K away top on. Um I can't say that I socially prescribe because I don't know if it's regulated, so I don't want to get in trouble now. But um, I do recommend patients go and join a group or a Nordic walking group or something in the local area.
2: Well, I think something like that we can all do unofficially anyway, and I don't think there's any downside to that. The social prescribing formal roles that you see advertised for GP surgery are a specific role, but at the moment there is isn't a, there is an association of um, social prescribing link workers, but I don't believe there is a formal registration process like there would be for us as radiographers. Um, I'm sure it will come in the fullness of time. I think it's such a new role, though, that they haven't quite no one's quite sort of grasped where it might fit. Um, so I'm sure it will come with time though.
0: I'm sure, Joe, with your prehabilitation hat on, you probably can see your mind thinking there a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely something even from undergraduate education that we try and encourage people to engage with their patients and thinking about how you can offer public health messages. So <clears throat> if you're talking to someone about fatigue, We know that exercise can help with that or activity and increasing your activity so you know although it may not be more formalized we know that that's going to have an impact if you have a patient who presents with mental health issues you know that potentially increasing the amount of activity they're doing I know for my own personal mental health if I'm starting to kind of trigger myself I'm like I'm going to go to Cornwall and I'm going to walk the coastal path that for me is therapy and and Absolutely. I can see why social prescribing works even from a personal perspective. Um you know there's definitely something about getting out into nature and I know some of the podcasts we've done previously with guests. I think actually all of our patients that we've had on so far have have indicated something to do with exercise as to what was their kind of their reassurance of getting back to being themselves um or their new selves after they've actually been diagnosed with cancer so I can definitely see how maybe those roles will develop and evolve. But I also think it is really important that we do take responsibility for maybe not necessarily always classing it as social prescribing, but engaging in those conversations around personalised care. And, and and I think sometimes, Emma, do you find that it's almost like where there's an expectation that as therapeutic radiographers or allied health professions that you go out and look into your local communities around what is available because I often find that actually from an NHS perspective there's less and less because of funding whereas there are more charitable organisations now that maybe take over some of those
2: roles absolutely yeah i mean we we refer to it as the third sector um quite often in those those charitable organisations don't we and there's no doubt that that is growing as a result of lack of nhs funding to to pick up some of those things um so yeah i think Becoming aware of though what is out there in your local community is really key, and I would encourage everybody to take note of that and just sort of just to have that sort of ticking away on in the in the back of your mind when you're talking to individuals and their families um just and and feel that you can you can offer that knowledge if if you think that that would be helpful to them. You know, I think a lot A lot of times it's confidence about, well, should I say this? Can I say this? Is it appropriate? And I think, you know, if we can get the message out there and empower people and say, yeah, it's, it's OK, that's fine. You, you can do that. It's absolutely OK. You know, please do that, actually, because those the people will put, that you're talking to about those um, potential activities or sports groups or whatever it may be, will perhaps just don't know about them and would find that really, really helpful.
0: Do you think there's a bit of a difference here between kind of the di- our, diagnose- well, I say our diagnostic colleagues diagnostic radiographers and therapeutic radiographers where I suppose we as therapeutic radiographers see patients for weeks so we have more opportunity within waiting room times or reviews or one-to-one in a maze going into the linear accelerator bunker where we can have this opportunity to talk about exercise nutrition but for a diagnostic radiographer who might see you know a patient for a chest x-ray very briefly do you think there's ample time for them to be able to do it?
2: I think you're right that it perhaps is a little bit more of a a usual thing for a therapeutic radiographer to do if you like because you do have those repeated um in interactions with the people that you're caring for don't you you might see the same person for a number of weeks while they're having treatment for it for diagnostic radiographers i guess it's less common but there is definitely still opportunities i remember in my own clinical practice days particularly working in CT and MRI where you would have commonly oncology patients coming back for surveillance scans every six weeks to monitor how well they're responding to treatment so there definitely are and I definitely built relationships with quite a few of the the people that I used to see and what you know I have a story that I tell the students about a particular patient that I formed quite a bond with who did unfortunately then pass away but that and that was very upsetting for me because that wasn't something I had previously been used to until I worked in CT and MRI and started to have those repeated relationships. Um, so yeah, I think there are definitely are opportunities out there. Um, it's about grasping them and th- and seizing them, isn't it? And and thinking what you can do.
0: Yeah. Making every conversation count. Um, that's.
2: Yeah. Making every contact, every contact count. count. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's that sorry yeah that's that's uh no it's it's a it's a really um it's one of the sort of buzz phrases to do with personalized care making every contact count
0: so emma you were awarded a national teaching fellowship as you mentioned uh by advance he can you tell us a bit more about it
2: yeah absolutely um i was absolutely delighted to get that obviously in the Educational World, a National Teacher Fellowship is a very prestigious award that recognizes that at um, you know you're achieving national impact with the things that you're doing. So I was really, really delighted when I was sort of given the nudge to say, "You really ought to do this." That was nice enough in the first place, but then to actually finally get you know go through the process and, and be awarded was fantastic. So um, it was quite a bit of work to put together the the claim they call it for the National Teaching Fellowship and I wrote it around um, my own research, obviously, looking at patient-centred approaches. Um, I also talked about how I've worked really hard to create a research-active team culture within my team at the university. And I also talked about my leadership and management of embedding simulation as a cornerstone of our teaching practice at the University of Derby, something that we've got a really strong reputation for. so those three things together formed the the basis of my my claim. Um, obviously, the research was underpinning teaching. My team being more research active was underpinning teaching, and simulation uh, being the cornerstone of our teaching approach was in, 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 you know again informing and in um, informing our teaching practice. So it was all about improving teaching for the benefits of our students and ultimately of course the end users the, the people that we care for in clinical practice.
1: As someone as, as who keeps getting the nudge to go and do things like this I keep, I keep reading about how much work it takes so it's amazing that you got it Emma absolutely amazing and it's great for radiography as a whole to kind of have role models real life role models as Janice would call them and um, to kind of motivate everyone to think about going for opportunities like that and um, i mean you commented a little bit about um kind of creating a culture and i know sometimes that's something that we say a lot of in academia um how would you go about maybe creating more of a a, a research culture within clinical because i know it's something that we can kind of get our heads around in academia and you're actively encouraged to obviously pursue research but what do you think we need to do to be able to generate more of that culture within the clinical setting?
2: I think it's about support, support for peers because I think when you're a new researcher, when you've you've not got much experience, when you haven't published before or taken things to conference, it's a really, really daunting prospect. You know, I remember my first publications and conference presentations, you know, my knees were knocking, I was shaking, I was in a terrible state. You know, it was really, really daunting. But as you do these things more and more, they get easier and easier. But one of the key things, I think, is collaboration, about not trying to go it alone. And I think sometimes people think they have to do it all themselves. It's got to be all their own work. Actually, collaboration is the best way forward. You get so much out of it. Um, And I've now collaborated with lots of people. Um, within the radiography community here in the uk i've also now got international collaborators as well um looking at international perspectives of person-centered care which is fantastic and um, and that's what i've tried to Im- embed within my own team around peer support buddying people up helping people who are less experienced supporting them to put together an ethics application and then helping them collect data and write that up as, that's been the way that i've done it and I would encourage the people that, that in clinical departments have got that experience already to really think about well who who's the young talent in their clinical department that they could support and work with and nurture, um, and you know I was really proud last week uh, that a colleague that I've been working with that um, is based at University Hospitals of Derby and Burton published an insight um, about his, his, the uh, experience he's had setting up a journal club within the trust. And I had helped him. I didn't expect him to name me on the publication, but he did. And I, it brought a little tear to my eye. <laughs> I just, you know, and I was so proud of him, so proud of him for what he's done. You know, it's absolutely fantastic what he's managed to achieve. So I think if we can try and encourage people to to offer that support to our new young bright things, that's what we need to do and grow our talent, don't we?
0: Definitely. Um Yeah, I did read the Journal Club one. It was very nice to see. It was, wasn't (laughs) Um, it? Yeah. You you talked about the international collaborations, Emma. Just wondering if you found from different communities that is there a big difference between person-centred care due to cultural backgrounds or religion?
2: So we don't actually know yet. We're just starting to collect the data. So um, the other um, universities that I'm working with have only just finished going through the ethical approval process. So we haven't got any any um, large amounts of data yet to start making any, any conclusions, drawing any conclusions from. But we do expect to see that different healthcare models have, are going to impact on it. We think without a doubt that they probably will. And we do expect to see countries with very rural communities, that that has an impact as well. Um, what that impact is, we'll, we'll obviously need to wait and see, but what, that is what we're anticipating. But interestingly, I am working with a a PhD student in Ghana at the moment who's also researching um, person-centred care approaches. And it's really quite striking already working with her, the differences that she... So, you know, what she perceives from feedback that she's had as person-centred approaches is quite different to what I would see. So we've had some really interesting dialogues about that. And that's all down again to the the funding of the healthcare systems and expectations of of health within um, the Ghanaian system. So really, really interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that.
0: Do you mind me asking what sort of differences?
2: So... Hopefully, I'm not breaking any confidences here, but one of the key things she's identified straight away is around waiting times, because in their healthcare system in Ghana, that there is no such thing as an appointment time. You go and wait. You go. You go to the hospital and you wait for your appoint. Um, well, it isn't an appointment. It's you know you wait to be seen. So the th- the thing that's coming through for her at the moment is around how do they reduce waiting times so that they can give better care. And that to me was, I was like, gosh, okay, so, you know, in the research that I carried out, waiting times came through as important, but they came through as important in terms of knowing how long you needed um, a parking ticket on your car, or what, you know, how would that affect which bus you that the person was gonna catch home and things like that, or, you know, were they going to be able to go back to work after the interaction? so completely different mindset and really eye-opening for me and I, and I felt a bit silly really not realizing it if I'm honest I felt a bit like of course of course I should have realized that but but it, it's so different and I think we, we're used to what we are used to aren't we we acclimatized to to whatever country we're living in and the systems and how they work there and i think that's where international collaboration is really really rich helping us to think about those differences and what we can learn from each other
0: yeah we're very lucky to have the nhs and i think there are countries you know we've talked about this on the podcast before joe and i that there are countries that have one linear accelerator for the whole country Mm. one clinical and maybe one medical oncologist and that's just normal um they never have a day off basically um but do you do you think I you might not have come across this yet with the research as well but do you think personalised care is different between public sector and private health care or the priorities might be different
2: i think i think that there probably is something in that unfortunately we didn't get enough private providers or independent providers as i think they prefer to be called um taking part in the original research but that it could be a really interesting follow-up piece of work because I I think from the the private or independent providers that we did have involved, you could see differences without a doubt. Um, And I think just the fact that often workload is more planned in those private and independent settings because they're not at the behest of emergency departments, for example, which can in diagnostic radiography can really disrupt things. Um, So the fact that it's more planned and episodes of patient care I think does make a difference and it would be interesting to explore that further definitely. You
1: could also imagine that they have more workforce available don't they to be able to kind of refer to so if someone did have yeah did have a condition that required physiotherapy they could have that at the same time as then obviously attending for a CT or an MRI rather than maybe having to wait six months <laughs> maybe being optimistic. <laughs> so Emma we're, we're moving on we're getting to the end and um, you've actually given us loads to think about and I'm sure people listening will already be taking lots away with them but have you got any hints and tips for you know any patients out there who maybe are considering well how can I engage more with my healthcare practitioner around person-centered care or um, any students who might maybe lack the confidence to start having those conversations and also thinking about healthcare professionals listening, you know, what is it that you would maybe advise them to start doing to make these changes in practice?
2: Well, let, let's start with the patients. Um, I think, first of all, my expectation that every is that every healthcare professional should start an interaction by introducing themselves and using the hello, my name is phrase. In my opinion, there's absolutely no excuse for anybody not using it ever because it takes no time at all. Um, so I think you should know who's caring for you and if you don't I think it's absolutely fine to say would you just mind telling me what your role is you know and trying to engage the person in that dialogue because at at the end of the day we are all human and we don't know what's going on for other people and the pandemic really highlighted that didn't didn't it that we don't know what else people are dealing with and it could just be a, a genuine oversight so I think if patients can you know try and encourage that conversation show Radiographers that they, they want or any healthcare professional that they want to have that kind of dialogue I think that's really great i'd also encourage patients to to vocalize what they want as well. I know a lot of um a lot of patients in the NHS particularly and particularly of a certain older age group are just so grateful sometimes for you doing their x-ray or providing their radiotherapy treatment that they almost are grateful for anything they get and that's not to disparage what they're getting but it's it's a certain mentality isn't it of anything they get is brilliant and they would never complain because they're so grateful for what they've got um and often that's to do with particularly with older patients to do with the fact they can remember the days when there wasn't an nhs you know so so i think just making sure that patients know they can ask for things if they're cold they can ask for another blanket if they need a pillow under their knees they can ask for that they can ask for the lights to be turned down they can ask for the music to be changed whatever it is it's okay it's absolutely okay to do that and you know if if it's a a a parent with a young child who needs a quiet area or if it's a, a carer with a person with dementia you know that needs a quiet area all these things are fine and it's okay to ask for those things it's absolutely fine and i think often people don't because they don't want to be trouble they don't want to put the healthcare professionals out and i think i would encourage patients to to vocalize those things with students i think it's about remembering that the small things can make all the difference so actually it's amazing the impact of a smile on somebody you know so just just smiling at somebody being friendly you know As I mentioned earlier, appropriate touch, open body language, you know, friendly, welcoming. How can you make them more comfortable? How can you help them maintain the position that they need for the imaging examination or the therapy treatment? You know, what can we do to make them feel more comfortable, less vulnerable and less afraid? Because hospitals are daunting situations, especially... In the in the areas we work in where we've got big pieces of kit, it's often quite cold. The air conditioning is often a bit fierce because it has to be because of the kit. So how can we make them feel more comfortable and less vulnerable? And then for healthcare professionals, I'd say please do look at the Personalised Care Institute website. Um you know it's excellent free CPD there's a range of short courses webinars and podcasts on there that you can go on to and access that give you a nice certificate to say that you've done some CPD you can then use for your HDPC or NMC audit uh, and you'll learn something about personalized care and about how you can integrate that into your practice and they're suitable for anybody absolutely anybody so please take a look at that it's really easy to find it you just type in personalized care Institute dot org dot uk but google should find it before you've even got that far anyway so um it's all in you know it's provided by the nhs it's all endorsed and and you know it's a really really good source of information
1: Ah, oh, thank you emma we'll definitely link it as well with the podcast so thank if you. for any
2: reason people
1: don't want to even google it they can just link directly from the podcast so that's fine Fantastic. i really like the point you made about um being a patient actually because i've had it and I'm sure you would have both experienced it. You know where a patient does ask? Mm. Never have I gone, oh, God, I can't, I can't believe that patient's asking for that. I always go, oh, yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah. Or if they're like, actually, I really don't like this song. Please, can we turn it off or can I have it in silence? It's it's one of those, isn't it? I think um, being a patient and on the other side, I can also see why well, I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, that's really painful. And they've mm. asked me, does that hurt? And I'm like... no no, it's fine it's fine keep going keep going and inside i'm like i'm gonna pass
2: out (laughs) Mm. exactly we all do it don't we we don't want to be a bother that's a it's a really british thing and we need to be more honest about how we're actually feeling
1: yeah absolutely Mm. so any patients listening know that you can ask your healthcare professional um for anything if they can't for whatever reason then it should be explained shouldn't it and we should be able yeah. to kind of have that two-way conversation about why maybe something can't be undertaken or or organising it for next time um i think yeah, it's so absolutely. important yeah so um, thank you so much again for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jo McNamara and Naaman Jelka anderson A huge thank you again to our guest, Dr Emma Hyde. So head over to the YouTube page to see a live recording of this podcast. And if you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature we've discussed to receive your accredited cpd certificate please complete the google form linked with the podcast so our next guests to feature will be Catherine holborn and emma hallam and they'll be discussing survivorship after radiotherapy so thank you for listening and take care